Well, it is a treat to be here. I've heard a lot about this church through friends that have moved from California to be here. Uh, some of your daughters have been interns at Radius. Four of them have gone through the program as interns in the Gap Year program, and we have two of them now that are presently interns there. Uh, so we have a deep affection for this church. I've had friends that have taught from this pulpit, um, getting to know Tom a little bit over this weekend, but some other men uh, that have been here just speak so highly of this church. So very much a privilege for me to be able to share with you this Sunday here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15 is what we're going to be looking at in Romans chapter 10. Uh, before we get to this particular passage, though, I'm going to give you a little bit of background so you know what I'm speaking from, so you have some context for some of the things that I'm going to say today. Uh, as Pastor said, we met in college, my wife and I. We graduated from college, and I got a job as an accountant, eventually worked as a chief financial officer for a Dutch company, worked over in Europe quite a bit, mostly in the Netherlands, France, and Germany. And we never got a missionary call. I'm convinced that the missionary call is something that is a modern-day invention of sorts. The only call we got was from this book and the confirmation of our church elders. That was our missionary call. And when I was overseas, at the end of my time, I was overseeing nearly 250 missionaries. And we asked at our national conference, how many of you got a missionary call? Something specific for you. Not one of them. They all got their call from the same place that we did. And so I would, I would maybe challenge some of you that are thinking about missions, read your Bibles and talk to your church elders. That's the call historically that has sent the most people to the field. And so we walked away from our job in uh, that particular field of finance, and we wanted to go to an unreached people group. If we were going to leave that behind, we wanted to go somewhere where the gospel had never been heard before. And so we heard that in Papua New Guinea, there were a lot of unreached people groups. If you find Australia and you go up, you'll find Papua New Guinea. And so we ended up going through two years of training, went to the field of Papua New Guinea. We had to learn the national language of the country. If you're going to go to an unreached people group or an unreached language group in this day and age, you've got to learn two languages. You've got to learn the language of the country, and then you've got to learn the language of the specific unreached language group within that country. And so we learned the national language, and then I'll never forget our mission leadership coming to us and handing us a list of seven people groups who had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. They don't make the list unless they've been asking for five consecutive years. And we looked at this list, and there was one people group on there that had been asking for 12 years, 12 years for what you and I have in our tongue today. And through a series of circumstances, we ended up picking a particular people group on there, uh, we took off in a small Cessna airplane the day of, me and the men on the team, the women and the kids stayed back, and we flew over the people group, landed at the closest airfield to it, and then we loaded up in a motor canoe. Motor canoe is a canoe about as long as this auditorium, and it's got an outboard motor on the back of it, and we started motor canoeing, working our way through the Salome River to get to Yembe Yembe territory. This was the people group we were going to survey. And when we arrived in Yembiembi, uh, we got a greeting of a lifetime. If they like you in Yembiembi, don't ask what they do if they don't like you, but if they like you, they take a big hunk of mud and they shove it into your face, and then they push it all the way down to your Adam's apple, and then they take diced up flower petals, throw those at your face, and it sticks to the mud. Now you're beautiful. Now you're ready to come into the village. And so 
That was our introduction to Yembe Yembe. And so all of us got out of the canoe. We spent three or four days there. We ended up going back and forth three times. And then finally we, after sending emails to our home churches, praying, deciding, is this the place, God, that you would have us to go? We moved in among the Yembe Yembe. And we told them, we are coming to be your missionaries. And we're going to do four things. Number one, we're going to learn your language and culture. We're going to learn to speak like you speak. Because the message we carry is too important to get wrong. Number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. There was no alphabet in their language. We had to develop an alphabet so that they can read and write for the first time. Number three, we're going to teach you how to read and write, but then we're going to translate a really important book into your language. And then number four, we're going to teach you the meaning of that book. We're going to teach you through the whole book. We're not here forever, but we're going to do those four jobs. And the Yembies told us, that's great. You're coming. That, that's a wonderful thing, but we don't want you to be like those who go and come. We don't want you to be like tourists. We want you to be adopted into clans here. And so in Yembe Yembe, there are four clans. There's the ostrich clan, eagle clan, black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're all birds. And they said, uh, they looked at me. I'm kind of tall. I played college basketball, so my nose is a little bit crooked. And they said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they put me in the ostrich clan. <laughs> my wife's got long blonde hair. They put her in the eagle clan. They gave us new names. Uh, they came to us about three months into the process. They asked how we had been married when all of us were Americans that were on the team. So we described our marriages, and they said, well, you, you think you've been married, but you're not really married, and so we need to remarry you. So they, they had us remarried. We had to go to different parts of the village, get dressed up in our clan colors, and then come in and the black vine around our arms. So I've been married twice, both times to the same woman. But... <laughs> This was all in an effort, friends, so that we would become insiders to the Yembe Yembe, so that we would, so that the gospel would have a clear platform so that they would hear it as someone who was one of them. And after two years of learning their language, two years of understanding their culture, two years of going through painstaking, diligent study, what do they believe? What do they hold to be true? Knowing where they were coming from before we brought the answers. Friends, be wary of a gospel message that doesn't know what it's speaking into. Praise God for good pastors who know their congregation. They know the context. They know the culture that they're speaking into. And the same thing must be true for our gospel ambassadors overseas. And so finally, we started teaching in 2008, January 2008. And we didn't start in Romans. We didn't start in Matthew. We started in Genesis 1-1. And we started bringing the story of the Bible into direct collision with their worldview. No man is a blank slate, whether that's your neighbor, whether that's your family member, whether that's a Yembe Yembe in the middle of the jungle. They all have answers to life's big three questions. Where do I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And to make sure that we knew the YMBMB answers to those questions. And we started teaching on this God who is so different than their gods. This God who makes things right the first time. He never makes mistakes. And the gods that the YMBMBs held up, the gods who created mankind, they tried it the first time and they made pigs. Then they tried a second time and they got closer and they made crocodiles. Then they tried a third time and they finally got human beings. This God is so different than your gods. This God is a different God in that he's perfect in everything he does. And then we started bringing out all the foods as we were teaching through the days of creation. The Yembies have 17 different kinds of bananas, 14 different kinds of sago, laying them out. We had a huge canoe covering the teaching house. We don't have a church building. We have a teaching house and the church gathers in the teaching house. And the canoe is flipped over and we put all these foods out and then we flew 
new foods in that they'd never seen before. Foods from Australia like peaches and oranges and apples. We had about 1,000 people a day coming out for the teaching, slicing them up into pieces so that everybody could have a taste. Does God eat food? No. Why did he make such incredible variety? Because he loves you, he loves me. And the Yembe started falling in love with this God who was so different than their gods. And then we got to Genesis chapter 3. And friends, if you don't understand Genesis chapter 3, I'm convinced you cannot understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't know what you're being saved from, what's the point of the answer? And to get to Genesis chapter 3 and the Yembies, the Yembies are not like you guys. You guys are a very common North American audience. You know when it's appropriate to laugh. You know when it's appropriate to sing, all that kind of stuff. The Yembies had never sat in institutional learning. And so whenever they liked anything that I would say as we're teaching through, they would just yell out, keep talking. This talk is good to my belly. <laughs> their belly is the seat of their emotions. And so they would say that when they're pretty excited. And they also, if they don't like what I was saying, they would yell from any time, enough. This talk, I'm about to throw it up because it's coming from their belly. And so you know really fast how you're doing in that environment. <laughs> so we're teaching the Yembies and we're walking them through Genesis chapter 3 and we would teach and then we would act things out. Because again, they had no movies, they had no DVDs, they'd never seen anything like this. And so we would act certain things out to help cement the lessons home. So we teach through Genesis chapter 3 and then we acted things out and then we would teach again. And we taught through Genesis, no, 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 it can't be right. Show us, show us. And so we put on our little costumes. I had this black bed sheet. I was Satan quite often. Um, and then my coworker's wife was Eve. And we're walking around in a circle. And as we're walking around, about a thousand people are getting closer and closer. And I'm whispering in my coworker's wife's ear, Eve, Eve, just take the fruit and your eyes will be open and you'll be just like God. And the Yembies, again, these are unsafe people. They're just raining insults down on her. Look at your belly. Where did all that food come from? God has been good to you. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Just yelling at her. She's reaching out to grab the fruit and one of the ladies jumps up and grabs her hand and pulls it down because they don't see fables and fairy tales. They see their ancestors, and what happens to their ancestors will trickle down to them today. And we had to sit the lady back down. She, well, she's going to eat the fruit. I know, but there's more talk. There's more talk to come. She sits back down. My coworker's wife takes the fruit, takes a bite, and a thousand people go quiet. And we start teaching on the ramifications of the fall. Your women having pain in childbirth. When we moved in, nearly 17% of the young ladies in the village died in childbirth. There's no such thing as epidurals where we're at. These things are real, in their face, existential. From dust you came to dust you will return. Friends, I'm convinced that more and more of our young people in North America, if they went to funerals like we see in the tropics, it would change the way they see life. This is real and in their face. But then the other half of Genesis chapter 3 is this promise that someday there will be someone coming. Someday there's going to be someone who is going to make things right between God and man again, who is going to redo what was undone there in Genesis chapter 3. And we kept on teaching. And the next day we started into Cain and Abel. I'll never forget one of the young men stood up in the back in the middle of the lesson as we're introducing Cain, and he yells from the back. Again, the Yembies are very verbose. Uh, he yelled from the back, stop, 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 stop the talk. Let me know right now, is he the one? I said, what do you mean? 
Is this Cain the one who is going to make things right between God and man again? Is he the one? No, he's not the one. He sits back down. I mean, the enemy's raining insults down on him. But everybody who's brave sitting around him, good question. And friends, we keep teaching. We keep teaching every day for three and a half months in every Old Testament character that we introduced. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Joseph. Someone got up in the teaching and asked the question, is he the one? Is he the one who will make things right? Who will undo the curse? Friends, that's the whole thrust of the Old Testament, pointing to the one to come, the one who will step in, who will undo the sins of our forefathers. And to look at that, the Old Testament through that light, to watch the Yembis waiting for that one, and finally we get into the New Testament and John the Baptist in John chapter 1, because the Yembis know no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all the Word of God. And so we step into John, and the Yembis hear of this one, and John the Baptist to see Jesus walking alongside the river Jordan. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We had about seven YMVMs stand up in the back. Wait, 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 wait. This one that Jono is speaking of, is he the one? Or are we waiting for another? Friends, it was the privilege of my life to be able to say, no, he's the one. He's the one. In fact, he's the reason we left our homes. He's the reason we've learned your language. This whole talk centers around this one. And I mean, the Yembis start yelling. You got a thousand people yelling at you. Stop the talk of John who dunks in water. Who cares about him? (laughs) Tell us about the one. We want to know about him. No, no, no. We got to build the house. Remember, we're building it piece by piece. We'll get to him three days later walking through. And they start falling in love with Jesus before they even know that he'll die for them. Because Jesus hung out with people like the Yembiembis. Jesus would be in those types of, Jesus touched people. You know that in the tropics to see someone with leprosy, what it does to your eyes, the various sickness that the, Jesus would be touching people like that. Jesus was that kind of a God. And to see them fall in love with him. And finally on April 21st, 2008, for the first time in the history of the Yembiembi people, we presented the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we had about 45 to 50 who understood who Christ was and that they were made right with the God of the universe again through his blood, through him dying on their behalf and being raised to life again. Friends, that was a day of days for us, never to be equaled again. And how those 45 to 50, how they lived, how some of them died, attracted more and more people to the church. And today it's about 450 to 500 that attend that little church in the middle of the jungle. They have their own elders, they have their own deacons, and now they're getting ready to send out their own missionaries in the next couple years. And so that's the background that we come into this lesson today with. So let me read these verses, and then we will dive into this passage, and we will look at six particular things to it. So Romans chapter 10, 13 through 15 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of God. And so if you're taking notes today, there's going to be six points that I'm going to draw out of this passage. Six things that pertain to how God 
how our God saves people who are in darkness, who have no access to the gospel. This is what Paul is referring to. And we'll talk about Romans chapter 15 tonight, how Paul saw his mission as a pioneer missionary to unreached peoples. And we'll talk about the implications of that. But for today, six points. And the sixth point will have three sub points to it. So six points. If you're taking notes, point number one is this. God alone saves sinners. God alone saves sinners. It's important for us to recognize right at the outset, if we're talking about missions, and it's a wonderful thing to have a missions weekend, but let's make sure the foundation is laid correctly. God alone saves. And here we have it squarely in the beginning of this great passage. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew, Gentile, Yembi Yembi, American, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, all who call on the Lord, regardless of backgrounds, regardless of jail record, regardless of number of divorces, regardless of unmentionable sins, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christians realize that there's nothing within themselves that saves them, but rather it has to be something outside of them, or more appropriately, someone that has to save us from our sins. This is what the reformers used to call an alien righteousness, something that comes from outside of us and does something to us. Within ourselves, we cannot produce this righteousness. And this is a wonderful truth that has undergirded God's people throughout their journey on this earth. The God of heaven, before the foundation of the earth was laid, has chosen a people from every language, tribe, nation, and He will have them. Missionaries can go forward in the sure confidence that the people who speak the Tuwadi language that still have no missionaries today, the Namu, the Hausa, the Savi, there are sheep from those people who belong to the king. And he will call them and they will listen to his voice and they will be gathered into the people of God. That's the confidence that we have as Christians. When we were in Yembi Yembi, one of the things that we would do on a regular basis is go on these long hikes to other sister villages, and we would have to cross rivers that were quite wide. And so what the Yembis would do is they would take a tree, and they would drop the tree across the river, and then you could walk across the tree rather than hiking for miles and sometimes days to get around the river at a choke point. But what would happen is, as you would drop these trees across these rivers, is that they're really easy to walk along when they're at the base of them. But when you get further up to the head, there are branches that can knock you off, and it gets skinnier and skinnier. And so what we do for people who are sick, for children, for those who are not very sturdy on their own as they cross this tree to the other side, is they choose someone called the bridge man. See, in Yembi when we were teaching, we had no word for Savior. We had no word for it. They had no concept for someone who is a redemptive figure. And so we were looking for a term that they could equate with someone who does something that you cannot do on your own. And we came up with this bridge man, this bridge man who takes us from Satan's side to God's side, from darkness to light. And you know what the job of those who ride on the back of the bridge man when they cross the bridge in Yembe, you know what the job is? Hold still. Don't talk. Don't offer advice. Don't try and do anything. The more you try and help, the more likely we go into the river. And if we go into the river, we die. 
because the river is usually rolling over rocks and you roll a few times and then you're done. The bridge man alone, you put your 100% confidence in him. Friends, that's our God, the God who saves. And only through our God is salvation available to everyone. But then there's this point that sometimes people come to. Well, if God does the saving, if God is going to save the Hausa, if God is going to save the Tuwadi, if he's going to get to the Niksek people, then why does he need us? Yes, God does the saving, and he can do that in any manner that he chooses. There are no limits on a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God. But we see in this passage, as we do in so many other passages in Scripture, that God uses means. Sometimes, if you look at your Bible and you read it and you know it well, you know that God can use angels. He's spoken through angels at times. Sometimes, one time, he spoke through a burning bush. He's even used donkeys. But the ordinary means that we see throughout Scripture and still today is that God uses people. He uses His people. He uses Christians who know their Bibles, and He uses them to spread the glory of His name throughout the world. John Calvin would say this, the gospel does not fall from the clouds like rain by accident, but it's brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it. The gospel comes as Christians go out. God has chosen in this day and age to use means. And so point number two, if you're taking notes, is some need to go. Some need to go. There needs to be goers if the nations, one of the implications we can draw from this passage is they will not hear unless people go. 2 Corinthians 5.17 echoes this truth about God using His servants. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And here it comes, therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. How does the message of the cross spread to the nations? How do the YMBM be here? Through people going. We've got to have goers. Can God do it in other ways? Yes, but we call those miracles. And we don't build strategies based off of miracles. We build strategies based off the ordinary means that we see in Scripture. The God of heaven has chosen to make his appeal for the gospel through human mouths. And if those human mouths never make it to those languages, never make it to those peoples, there is no second option. Some need to go. Point number three, those who go must know their Bibles. Those who go must know their Bibles. One of the things that gives me great encouragement in the missions world today is that the overwhelming majority of Christ's people love their king. They care about the glory of God and the advance of the church and having great hope for seeing the world evangelized. But if good intentions were all that were necessary for the world to be evangelized, it would have been done thousands of years ago. No, it's got to be good intentions coupled also with the hard work of gaining a knowledge of what is true and what is biblical. You guys realize that knowing your Bibles is hard work. Your pastor puts together messages. 
He works at that for you to know your Bible. This doesn't just fall on you like rain, like we certainly need in Texas right now. My goodness, we stepped off the plane yesterday. No, this is hard work to understand your Bible, to get to know it. And Christians who are going overseas need to know their Bibles before they go, more than any. The Apostle Paul would write to Timothy, and he would say this in his second letter, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There is, and this is the big elephant in the room when it comes to missions, there is such a thing as a false gospel. Galatians chapter 1 teaches us, and it makes this very, very clear. There is such a thing, and well-intentioned, good men and women who love the Lord Jesus can unintentionally do great damage to the cause of Christ if they don't know their Bibles before they go. Not because of malicious intent, because of a great intent and faulty knowledge. So where does someone learn to know their Bible better? Three primary places. Number one, in their family Number two, in their church. And number three, at formal Bible training. Praise God for good parents who raise their children up under the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's difficult to count the number of missionaries who have made it to the field who were raised in Christian homes with a steady diet of the Word. But it would certainly be the majority. The majority of missionaries come from good Christian families. There are others but to be raised in a Christian family where they take their family time in the Word seriously, where dad intentionally gives books for the young students to read, young children to read. But the natural effect of a family that is in the Word is that a family is about the local church. If a family is being raised in the Word, they're naturally going to be a family of the church. It's no overstatement to say that the primary instruction of the Bible comes from the church. Yes, family has its role. Where do we primarily get taught from the Word? Here on Sundays, the gathering of the local church, the regular week-in, week-out teaching. Missionaries who know the Word have always been faithful church members. There is no other kind to know the church, and to be raised in the Word in the church. And then finally, there's this further level of training that's helpful for those that are going outside their home country, outside their mother tongue, to places and to peoples that still live in darkness. And for that type of training, Bible schools and seminaries are helpful. I'm thankful for seminaries that are starting to move back to the example of Princeton Theological Seminary. Some of you have heard of Princeton. You know of Princeton now. Princeton now is a shell of what it used to be. This was the school where B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd came out of early Princeton. And one of the shocking things that most people don't realize is that early Princeton, 33% of their student body were going into foreign missions, heading out past the English language, moving out to countries. Oh, for seminaries and Bible schools that are moving towards that trajectory. How do we move, get these students who know their Bible to get beyond the English language, to come back to the roots of Princeton at its heights. Oh, for parents, churches, seminaries that press home the primacy of getting to the nations, but push for a deep knowledge of the Word before their child, church member, or student leaves this country.
We need families. We need churches. We need seminaries. We need all of them. But most of all, we need missionaries that know their Bibles before they go overseas. Number four, those who go must be clear communicators. Those who go must be clear communicators. Missionaries are ambassadors. They're ambassadors of the king. Heralds is what the Scripture says of a message from the king. Ambassadors are not judged on the response of the people to the message. They're judged on how, they're not judged on how many listen or obey. They're judged on one criteria. Did they clearly convey the message that the king gave them? That's what missionaries will be judged on. That's what ambassadors, even foreign ambassadors for the United States today, they're not judged on whether or not the country accepts the message. They're judged on, did you convey the message of your country clearly? Christians, missionaries, are exactly the same. Can they speak clearly? I'm not talking about high-flowering rhetoric like Paul references in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but more what he's speaking to in Colossians 4.3. Listen to this. At the same time, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make clear which is how I ought to speak. If Paul, the great apostle, the great teacher who knew three languages, we know he knew Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and probably a fourth Latin because he was a Roman citizen. If Paul is asking for clarity, how much more are missionaries of this day and age? Missionaries to foreign lands are first and foremost communicators. In a pinch, a translator can be of service, but only as a short-term necessary crutch, not for a long-term primary preaching and teaching pastor and missionary. To communicate clearly the language of the people that they are teaching into, they must know the nuance of that language. Oh, for good pastors overseas that can speak with the grammar, syntax, discourse features appropriate for that language, to speak with all the color and the nuance, to know the culture that they're speaking into, to know what they believe before they get there. For Christians to be good communicators overseas, we have to be clear communicators. When I was over in Yembe Yembe and we were starting to learn the Yembe Yembe language, they would count out how many mistakes I would make a day. And I mean, they just lost count by the end of the day. It was just a list and lengthy things. In Yembe Yembe, in, for us to get around, we have a lot of rivers there. And so we have canoes. Men stand in canoes. Women sit. That's the rule. Men stand. And so uh, really easy for a five foot two guy that has been raised since he can walk to stand in a canoe and paddle. Not so easy for a six foot three guy that's coming from the United States that's never stood in a canoe in his life. And to learn how to paddle a canoe, it's really easy to paddle a canoe on a flat lake or even easy to paddle a canoe as you're going with the current, but to turn it up and to go against the currents. The Yembies would line up on the bank of the river, 200 or so strong, and watch as I'm practicing to paddle this canoe, yelling from the bank, wait, wait for it, and they're yelling to each other. This is some big show because I'm, in, I'm the show for about two years as I'm learning their language and culture. And then I'm tipping as I'm trying to turn this canoe and the tip is starting to go over the side and then I dump it into the water and everybody cheers on the side and I do it again, do it again. Friends, if you're going to learn a language, the reason most of our gospel ambassadors don't learn languages to full fluency, they teach with a limp for their entire lives, they sound like North Americans in their accent, is because learning another language is hard. 
It's probably the hardest thing that missionaries have to do, to be able to get fully fluent in the language. But friends, if our God is to be made clear, if our God is to be the God of their belief system, not just the outside God, not just the American's God, we have to learn to full fluency their language. 1 Corinthians 14, 7 through 11, Paul is speaking to the issue of tongues and how tongues are intelligible languages. But he makes this observation. Listen to how he phrases this. He says this, if even lifeless instruments such as a flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will anyone get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is being said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Whoo! If our, lang- if our missionaries don't know how to communicate, they will always be foreigners. And here's the brutal part. The God that they represent will be a foreign God. He will always be someone that is outside. Our gospel ambassadors, our goers, must be clear communicators. And as we step into next year will be 2024, it'll be the 500-year anniversary of the Bible being translated into our language for the first time in history in totality. William Tyndale in 1524, started the process of translating the Scriptures into English. And to see that process come together, what most people don't realize is that Martin Luther, William Tyndale, the two who translated into German and into English, who sparked the Protestant Reformation, they were excellent in their own language before they started translating. The key to translation, and I've done this over and over, I translated the entire New Testament into Yembe Yembe, translated the Pentateuch into their language. The key to being a good translator, first and foremost, is not being a good linguist. It's not being a good actually. You know what the key is? The number one trait, head and shoulders of good translators, do they speak the local language well? You want to produce a good translation? You want to raise up missionaries that translate well? How well do they know the language? Friends, that's the key. Do our gospel communicators know what they are speaking into? Are they clear communicators? And then number five, those who go must preach. Those who go must preach. This is the clearest injunction we can draw from this passage, from what we see of this entire passage. Preach the word. Preach the word. The ordinary means that God has chosen for people to be saved is that someone who knows their Bible, who can communicate clearly, preaches or heralds the gospel to them. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the eminent Welshman, he was a preacher in the 20th century, one of the most powerful preachers. If you ever get a chance to listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons, uh, they're a treat through and through. But he says this, we must always say that God is not tied to means. He can do things directly, but His usual manner is preaching. God has the power to work a miracle when He chooses, but a miracle is an exception. The normal is for God to use the means that He Himself has brought into existence. God has chosen that men and women should be brought to salvation by this method of preaching the gospel. Missionaries got to preach. They've got to share the word. They've got to know the word, 
Then they got to know how to communicate. And then they've got to preach. And they've got to bring all of those things into combination if the gospel is to be made clear. It's through the preaching of the gospel that men and women are saved. Humanitarian projects, social justice, the alleviation of human, mis human misery, all of these things are wonderful additions. But it cannot and should not be the primary task of Christians. Christians are not primarily about helping things be better on this earth. Yes, it's a means to it. But without the preaching and without the gathering of the saints into a local church, we are missing the power of the gospel and the point of the Great Commission. Uppermost in priority is the preaching and teaching of God's Word, and we put our faith in that patient, ordinary means of grace. 2 Corinthians 1.21 says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what was preached to save those who believe. God saves the world through the preaching of his word. Those who go must preach. And then there's this twist that happens right on the verse 15 here. We've read, uh, we've gone through 13 and 14. In Romans 10, 15, it says this, and how are they to preach? Okay, they've gone. They know their Bibles before they go. They know how to communicate clearly. Now they've preached the gospel, but how do they even get there in the first place? And Paul comes to this two-part equation. He says this, and how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. John Piper, one of his books is out there, Let the Nations Be Glad. I hope that book is gone by the end of this service. Uh, John Piper will say based on this passage, that you have three choices if you believe this book to be true. Three choices when it comes to missions. Either one, you're a goer. You're someone who goes. You're one of those guys, one of those ladies who makes it overseas. You're a goer. Number two, you're a sender. Or number three, you're a disobeyer. There's no fourth category. You're a goer, you're a sender, you're a disobeyer. And so speaking to the senders here specifically, because I'm just going to be really honest with you, there's only probably about 10% of you in here that could go somewhere that could learn another language. We find statistically at Radius that, and this is based on the U.S. military and what they teach us, is that somewhere in the mid-30s, someone's ability to learn a language starts to tail off. So what do you do if you're a sender? What if God has called you to be a faithful sender in this church body? Well, let me give you three points, and this is our sixth point, three points that mark good senders. What do good senders look like? Number one, good senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers. Good senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers. One of my missionary heroes was John Payton. It's not John Patton. Patton's the general. Payton's the missionary. Patton, uh, excuse me, Payton was a Scotsman, and Payton ended up leaving Scotland, and he went to the island, what was used to be called the New Hebrides. It's called Vanuatu today. He landed in Vanuatu, and within three months, his wife died from malaria. He buried her, and, her, and pretty soon after, his young son died as well. A month ago, I was there on the island of Aniwa, got to see their grave, and he stayed, and he remarried, and he lost three more kids. He buried them all on the island of Vanuatu as well, and he stayed, and he stayed, 
and he stayed and he continued to learn the language and finally he could preach and he preached and he preached and finally there was a church established and the church started to multiply and nearly the entire island of Aniwa was converted and a strong church was established. I got to see that church and to interview some of the Christians just a few weeks ago. Peyton's on the island of Aniwa and he's going through this incredible suffering and he comes back to Scotland. There was a really popular hymn at that time that they were singing in the churches of Scotland. And the hymn, the middle stanza goes like this, send our sons and daughters glorious to the nations abroad. And Peyton got up in front of the church and he said, everybody loves to sing that hymn as long as we're talking about somebody else's sons and daughters. Friends, do you raise your children with the idea that they might be goers? Do you put in front of them Gladys Allward? You put in front of them Hudson Taylor, William Carey, Elizabeth Elliot, John and Betty Stamp. You realize your children will rise to the heroes you set in front of them. And if it's financial heroes, if it's sports heroes, and it's only that, I'm not against sports, I'm not against finance, but if you don't put in front of them heroes that they'll aspire to, if you don't raise them as temporary stewards, will they live past that? Will they ever have the chance to be a goer? Do we raise our sons and daughters to be goers? Number two, good senders live in such a way that the Great Commission affects their life here. Good senders live in such a way that the Great Commission affects their life here. Good senders know what it means to see their fellow church members sent out. There's a famous missionary. His biography is on that back table as well. His name's William Carey. He's known as the father of modern missions. He was one of the first from the English-speaking world to head out to the nations. He would go to the country of India, and he would never return. He would learn six languages over there. He would have six translations of the Bible that he would finish before the Lord took him home. But before he left, he was with his dear friend, Andrew Fuller, and they were thinking through what he was about to do. And they described it as Kerry was about to go down a deep, dark well. He was about to drop down this well. And this is where this famous saying comes from. Kerry turned to Fuller and he said, I'll go down the well if you'll hold the rope. Will you hold the rope for me as I go down? And friend, I'm, I'm convinced that the king is coming someday. I'm convinced that the king could come at any time. He could come today. He could come tomorrow. He could come in a week. But the king is coming. Someday the king is returning. And when he comes, he's going to ask everyone who went down the well, all of our goers, show me your hands. Show me what it costs you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But I'm convinced that he's going to ask the senders, the people at the top of the rope, show me your hands. Don't show me your church's hands. Don't show me your Sunday school, your small group. Show me your hands. Friends, will you have any scars when the king returns? Has it cost you anything to see the gospel advance? I praise God for Jack and Mary Alice Griffin from my home church of Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church in San Diego. Jack had a, a construction business, and he helped pay for our tickets to the field the first time. Him and Mary Alice were there at our commissioning. We never saw them before we got back. Thirteen years later, the Lord took them home, and they're with the MBMBs that have graduated to heaven, and they're up there now. But Jack and Mary Alice is faithful senders. Friends, 
Faithful senders drive older cars. They live in smaller houses. They have skinnier 401ks for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the nations. If this church raises up within it young men and young women who say, I'll go, I'll go. I think I'm going to that place. I'm going to be heading to China. Elders in the church, would you look at my life? Would you evaluate whether I'm ready? Will there be an army of senders to get behind them? Where will the senders be? Will you have any scars when the king returns someday? Good senders allow the Great Commission to affect their life here. And then finally, good senders are faithful church members. Good senders are faithful church members. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians that go out apart from the local church. Missionaries do not go out separate from the local church. That is an anomaly in history and in biblical understanding. It also knows nothing of faithful Christians, faithful senders, who are not faithful to the local church. You want to be a good sender? Be a faithful Christian. Be a faithful church member first. One of the things that we pound into our students at Radius is that it's going to take you about 15, 20, 30 years to take the gospel somewhere where it's never been before, to evangelize that group, to raise up disciples, and then to gather those disciples into a local church. We're going to talk about that tonight, why the finish line of the Great Commission is the local church. Everything else is a wonderful step towards that direction, but without a local church, that's not the completion of the Great Commission. But it'll take them 15, 20, 30 years. And here's my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters. If you raise up young men and young women in this congregation and they head to the nations and they go and they're faithful and by God's grace there is a church planted that will outlive every one of us in this room, will you be here when they get back? Or will things knock you? Well, the Sunday school program's getting a little, little long. Ah, they only sing hymns here. Ah, pastor teaches for 50 minutes. That ah, COVID... Trump, Biden, there's an endless litany of things that can knock people out and jump around. Or will you be faithful? Friends, if the gospel stops being preached from this pulpit, you find another church. But if the gospel is faithfully preached from this pulpit week in and week out, you stay faithful. Good senders are first and foremost faithful church members. When we wrapped up in... Uh, we taught the gospel in Yimbiambi. I'll close on this. We taught the gospel, and two weeks later, the Yembis came up to my house, and my house was built on these huge posts. There was rows of posts, and it was about eight feet off the ground, so the Yembis helped me build it out in the middle of the jungle, and they knew exactly where I slept at night because they helped me build the house. And so they had this long pole, and they would hit the bottom of the floor whenever they needed to wake me up. And they would hit the bottom of the floor, and I mean, you would come out of a stark sleep, and you just, you didn't know what was happening. And so sure enough, two weeks after we present the gospel, the Yembies pop, pop, bottom of the floor, get up, go to the window, and yell out to the window, who is it? And it's a typical Yembi response, it's me, it's me. <laughs> I know it's you, who are you? It's me, your tribal father. 
oh my goodness, all right, this is a big deal. And so got outside, grabbed my flashlight, go out there. And in Yembiembi, it's really rude to shine your flashlight on someone's face. It'll ruin their night vision. You shine it on their feet. And they can recognize all 1,200 of each other by their feet. They're looking at my feet. Of course, they can recognize me, but I can't recognize anybody. And so I'm shining it on their feet, trying to figure out who it is and working my way up to the kneecaps and the belly button and finally recognize these are seven believers. These are seven Christians who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And so I asked them, what's going on? And they said, well, we want to know when we're going. I said, what do you mean? Well, if what the book says is true, our sister village across the mountains, Changriman, they're going to the place of fire, right? Yeah, that's true. So when are we going? Will it be tomorrow or the next day? Two weeks old in the faith. When are we going? Friends, I came back to the United States in 2016 and I've had a large church and a wealthy businessman offer to fly the Yembiembi elders and their wives over to the United States for their missions conference. And I said, no, both times, it'll never happen for two reasons. Number one, the Yembis getting on an airplane that size, landing at LAX, coming up, seeing Costco, forget about it. Like it's just, <laughs> it will blow their world. But the second reason, and I was pretty candid with the businessman, I said this, brother, you, you don't know what you're asking for. You think this would be a good thing. I, I don't think this would go the way you think it is. Because remember, the Yembis, who, if they don't like what you're saying, will yell out at any time during the service, enough, stop your talk, or they'll do other things to let you know this is something they're not agreeing with. The Yembis would probably stand up at a conference, maybe a little bit like this, and they would ask the question, how long have you had this talk? How long have you had this? When are you going? When are you going? And friends, there's going to be goers and senders. There's going to be this two-part equation to seeing the Great Commission accomplished someday. But my admonition to you is find your place in that so that you can be part of that going to see the nations reached for the glory of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are saved from our sins. We no longer stand under condemnation. We are free from what has enslaved us for years and years. And yet we recognize that there are peoples, there are places, there are languages that still rest in darkness, that still have no knowledge of the truth and will have no knowledge unless someone goes. Father, raise up from this congregation goers that will go beyond, that will stretch into those places that still are in darkness. Raise up the army of senders that will stand behind them, that will be faithful, that will have scars when you come someday. And we'll give you all the glory for these things. In Jesus' name we pray.